Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's very fine managing editors. Danny, I hear there's no power left in New York and therefore you're offline and back in the Stone Age. We had a brownout in New York City. We actually hit a record for power usage. Climate change is real. It's 105 degrees real feel in New York City. Don't come here at all. That's my line. <laughs> we also have Natasha Moskvanis here. Natasha, you are on vacation technically right now because you are um, California bound. How are you doing? I'm feeling super anticipatory. I'm amped to be back in San Francisco and my calendar is already filling up. So people do indeed live there. Despite popular belief. Yeah, I can't wait to go visit and be like, oh my gosh, it's not a ghost town. Anyways, also not a ghost town today is our packed, packed show. We are going to talk about Hinge Health and some board drama in the venture capital space. We are going to talk about the DD and Sentinel One IPOs because they were big news this week for investors and founders alike. We're also going to talk through a little bit of the Duolingo S1 that just dropped. Of course, we have our ed tech expert Natasha here with us to help. And we have rounds from Zipline, Daylight, new funds from Accelerprise, Articulate, raised something that's called the Series A, but we don't really believe it. We'll get into that in just a minute. And then we have notes on the Peanut Microfund, which is a great, great name. And then, of course, we have, to wrap things off, a hot take session on all things alt search. It is going to be a packed and delightful episode. But Natasha, you are up first because you wrote a piece about Bessemer and Hinge Health, and I want you to tell people what's going on. Yes, I'm going to walk through it as simply as I can, which is that Bessemer replaced a board member at Hinge Health, which is the company that it, you know, it led its Series C round. It replaced a board member after some competitive tensions surfaced between the company and that same firm leading an investment in a seed stage company within roughly the same sector. In other words, Hinge Health has replaced a board member because that same board member has invested in a competing company. It's kind of a peak, a rare peak, I would say, into how competitive tensions can actually lead to action and, and real board tensions. I want to ask a question about this because the, the real, I read the piece that you put together, is very good. But it, it seems that the, the Bessemer investor in question didn't think that his other deal was competing with Hinge Health and Hinge Health disagreed. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I mean, not only did Bessemer not think that, neither did that seed stage company. So that seed stage company is clearing, raised a 20 million Series A actually like in January, but recently announced, which is a separate conversation in and of itself. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the founder didn't even know that this was a dynamic. To me, like the real story with this is that the Hinge Health founder feels like they were not communicated to about the investment. And so it was more about lack of transparency than, oh, you're actually investing in a direct competitor. I mean, Hinge is a $3 billion valued company, probably more by the next time it raises. Yeah, Danny, so my question about this is, I, I thought we were done with these kind of worries. I feel like, you know, in the old days, everyone would make one bet in a particular sector as a VC, and then uh, they would stick to it. And it, it, things got looser as there was more money bouncing around. But here we are seeing kind of like an old school dynamic, it feels, play out in the modern venture capital market. I think there's been a lot of challenges, right? As venture capitalists have raised more and more money, and there's just more and more competitors in the same space. You know, one of the things that I think has gotten complicated, you know, take uh, health as a great category. People are in multiple product lines. They're in multiple different business models. In this case, they're in the same general area with different business models. And VCs would say, well, they're different, right? One is focused on, I, I guess it was through um, benefits paid versus direct to consumer, if I recall the, the divide here. Yeah. You know, VCs would say they're not going to compete with each other because, you know, the consumer in one category is not the same consumer in another. CEOs can disagree and, and reasonable people can come to different <laughs> conclusions. And I think this kind of shows the challenge of navigating a world in which there are so many competitors, so many spaces, people overlap so much, 
And VCs want to be in the winners. And I think one of the secret stories going on here, frankly, is is Pessmer wants to be in one of the winning companies and is willing to, you know, kind of hedge its bets, so to speak. And obviously, CEOs don't like that. No, CEOs don't like that. And we've seen founders and companies throw their weight around a little bit. I, I'm not going to re kind of litigate the Phoenix Stripe fiasco, but <laughs> I, I do think it goes to show that, you know, successful companies can kind of push investors around. And I, I think this is an element or kind of a factor of today's founder friendly investor environment. I mean, in the old days, VCs had all the power and made founders come to them. Today, it's all Zoom and, and founders of companies that have a lot of growth seem to have all the leverage. And so you can kind of kick up some dust and demand that one board member leave, who I, I, we're not going to name, even though it's pretty easy to find out who it is. Anyways, yeah. and, and Elliot is uh, taking over the Bessemer board slot. Elliot Robinson, uh, part of the Bessemer growth team, I, I'm just going to say one of the nicest VCs, I, I think, out there, just in, in terms of like uh, human goodness. I, I really like Elliot. So they're, they're getting a really great board member out of the deal. So that's nice. Yeah, no, definitely a win with getting Elliot on your team. I mean, notably, Bessemer is still in both companies. So it didn't lose its look into the company. It still has two bets and two companies within the MSK space. The last thing I'll add, or one thing I'll add, <laughs> is that this will probably come up more and more, maybe not on the record, but considering how much deal velocity and volume there is right now. I mean, we saw it with Spark Capital and Dispo, completely different situation, but a lack of due diligence can lead to surprises down the road and departures either from an investment perspective, in this case, a board replacement, a lot of things to be said. And I am coining it hot due diligence summer <laughs> as the summer that we should all be paying attention to. <laughs> that's that's a really long thing to trend on Twitter. I will just point out one more thing before we get into the governance on the IPO side. I, I do think that there's a real challenge of agency here, right? You know, in, in most fundraising rounds and most term sheets, the VC gets to control who the board member is. And it's not usually written who that board member is. The VC can always change out the board member. And that actually is getting more and more common as VCs are fluctuating between firms. A lot of firms have to replace those board members as, you know, partners leave. In some cases, they retain them. In some cases, they move over. Um, and so I think I, we're just going to see more and more of this churn on boards in the same way we're seeing churn on partnerships, in the same way we're seeing more competition. It's just more frenzy. Ah, yes. And that, to me, is not ultimately good for startups. No, but rising temperature increases the speed of all atoms. So I'm not surprised to see all things accelerate as the venture capital market gets warmer. And speaking of a very, very hot market, guys, have you seen what's going on with public offerings? Because there have been so many, I have lost track of them. I, I, I used to remember when people complained about lack of liquidity. And I'm at the point where there's so much goddamn water. There's so much liquidity everywhere. The water's just sloshing around. It. It's like the sea levels are rising. <laughs> it's ironic given that California has no water at all, but lots of liquidity. Oh, but only in North, Northern California. It's only Northern the place California. where the Silicon Valley people Let's are. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. Snap went public and then LA didn't do anything for a while. Oh, they made Bird, I guess. That didn't go well. All right. Anyways, there's been a lot of IPOs. Sorry for all the inside jokes. If you got half of those 10 points, you're a nerd. All right. Essentially, here's what you need to know. Q2 2021 may have been the busiest quarter for U.S. IPOs since 2000. 2000, of course, was the year in which we had the uh, kind of the original dot-com bubble, if you will. And unlike 2000, uh, most of the companies that went public weren't complete shit. So that's pretty exciting. The irony here is that when we were heading into 2021, VCs were telling us, if I think we had this on like the prediction show back in December, was that Q1 was going to be hot for IPOs, Q2 was going to be a lull, and then it was going to be a really busy Q3, Q4. And, and the argument was, you know, you want to get your kind of like 2020 accounting done. And then it's kind of a pain in the ass to do it again. So why not just go public in Q1? 
Q2 was just super busy, Danny. And, you know, he's kept me nice and nice and active, but uh, I was surprised by the, the number of IPOs. I was curious if you were surprised too. I, I think everyone's rushing before the September hangover from all the stimulus, all the money flowing in, in into the markets. You know, we had multiple trillions dumped into the economy. It's obviously doing super well. Everyone's traveling. So, you know, LegalZoom, ClearSecure, Intap, Exometry, Integral Ad Science, Krispy Kreme, which obviously is by far the Krispy IPO I'm tracking Kreme. the most. It's a very sweet one to pay attention to. <laughs> And D market, but <laughs> two of the ones I think are most interesting. First, out of China, Didi is IPOing, and Alex, you wrote up a story here. This company is is a weird one. Yeah, it's strange. So Didi, as I'm sure we all remember, is the kind of like the the Chinese Uber, which is a, a very unfair way of describing a company of that size. But if you go back in time, Uber China, the Chinese subsidiary of Uber back in the day, and Didi were engaged in in a really long price war back before Uber kind of gave up sold this business to Didi and kind of accepted a stake in the company, they were just bashing each other's head in on you know who could get the most rides at the lowest price. And it was a very unprofitable idea to have that fight. Anyways, Didi kind of won. And now they're public in the US. They priced at $14 per kind of American share. There's a conversion between American shares and like their actual you know class A stock, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is it's kind of cheap. And I don't really understand why. When we first got to see some Didi pricing numbers, it uh, was going to trade and kind of at a discount to Uber's valuation, kind of its market cap. And it's, uh, it didn't make any sense from the numbers perspective. And I, I don't know what to make of that, Natasha, but I'm curious if, if you have a, a stock market hot take for us. Looking at Uber and Lyft historically, because I know people are upset, okay, we shouldn't judge Didi by its day one lack of pop. Look at how Uber and Lyft have done historically, and it's not too impressive. So I'm not, I wasn't surprised to see it get valued the way it was. Also, Alex had to give a shout out to you. Your headline and the information's headline, Alex wrote, why is DD worth so much less than Uber? And the information wrote DD's uninspiring public debut. And I was like, damn, those are both just like tough first day headlines. Well, the, my, my, that DD headline was actually from its pricing. My, my day of headline was uh, for US and Chinese startups, the IPO market is increasingly a two tier affair because it seems that like Chinese companies that are listing in the US aren't getting the type of valuations they might have expected. And, you know, companies tend to come and list in the U.S. because of strong valuations, a very right. active interest in like IPO and growth shares, deep capital, you know, access. And uh, it doesn't seem to be working out, Danny. A knock against China or just kind of a weird tremor in the market? I, I think there's three things going on. First, you know, the Chinese government has shown a huge amount of commitment around antitrust in a way that is also bubbling up in the United States, but like it's actually happening. So we saw this with Ant. We've seen this with Alibaba and Tencent, two of the largest tech companies in China. And I think Didi, which had just a couple of weeks ago some complaints and filings from state authorities around antitrust, is facing the same headwind. So, so antitrust yeah. is definitely one of them. Number two is, frankly, growth. If you look at 2018 fiscal year, and, and they're on the calendar system, so 2018 calendar, 2019, 2020, revenues for China-based mobility for Didi were essentially flat, actually remarkably flat. So if you look at 2018, 2020, 133 billion renminbi. Also 133 billion RMB, you know, in 2020. So there's absolutely no growth whatsoever. Expenses were flat. And as, uh, the company is trying to expand uh, globally. So it's in 10 countries, um, Kazakhstan, it's in the Dominican Republic, a lot of other markets. That went from 410 million RMB to 2.3 billion. So a little bit of growth, but like minuscule towards the rest of the company. So I, I think it's completely flat growth. Third, and I think this is the most important when you're comparing it to Uber, is Uber has Uber Eats. And I think one of the secrets to a lot of the delivery is Uber has this entire other business called Uber Eats, which while losing, uh, not just losing, hemorrhaging dollars, is a massive, massive, massive growth opportunity, massive business. 
Didi doesn't have the same opportunity because there are a bunch of other companies, Meituan, Dianping, others who are in the delivery space in China who frankly dominate in that category and they're never going to own it. So I, I think when you combine antitrust, complete lack of growth, and there's really no market expansion because Tencent and others have owned you know, kind of the lateral adjacent industries, it's kind of a low flyer, to be frank. Yeah, flipping that around a little bit, the positive take on this would be if you look at kind of Q120 versus Q121, the company doubled in size. That's because COVID hit earlier in China. And so it's Q1 numbers from last year were bad, awful, terrible, dispiriting catastrophe. Anyways, uh, things have gotten better. The The other positive thing that DD does have is uh, net income. Uber is still clawing its way towards adjusted EBITDA by the end of the year, whereas DD has actual gap results that are positive. And it does have a growing international business and its, quote, other initiatives, which includes food delivery, not in China, if I recall correctly, it, uh, put up some pretty good growth numbers as well. So you can, you can find growth, but Denny's right that the core business does appear to be a little bit lackluster. But let's flip it around and talk about a company that is, in fact, valued very richly, which is Sentinel One. L okay, let's just play a game. Who had heard of Sentinel One before it went public? Because I hadn't. Not this gal. I I've heard of literally the company name. Okay, so Danny, you're the most informed about Sentinel One. What does it do? <laughs> yeah, it is an endpoint security app that's designed to. Uh, everyone does endpoint security, right? So all of your laptop yes, devices, all of the it. the IoT devices, your copiers, your printers you know, a potential vectors for hackers to enter into a company. Because once you're inside the internal network, inside that firewall, you have access to everything else. And so there's a bunch of companies, Sentinel One's one of the major ones in endpoint security and detection. It is done extremely well. And as you can imagine, cybersecurity is probably the hottest sector on the market today because of all the major news stories around Colonial Pipeline, hackers, ransomware, et cetera, over the last couple of months. And so it debuted. It actually raised $1.2 billion it raised its price multiple times from 26 all the way up to 32. It actually ended up selling 35 million shares at $35 each. And it's now worth on the public markets 43 bucks up from 35. So not only <laughs> did it raise multiple times, but it also still got a pop on the market. And yeah. um, it, it's got to be one of the best cybersecurity debuts we've seen in some time. It's above $10 billion in market cap. And most notably, the company got the S stock ticker. It is S. It's just an S? That's like the equivalent of having at Alex on Twitter. It's got this single letter stock ticker, which with that that's some nice... People are going to accidentally invest in that company, for sure. <laughs> well, okay. AT&T famously had the T ticker symbol, which prevented the company from becoming a rent-seeking telecom vampire squid, as we all know. <laughs> What's very important to, to notice about the Sentinel-1 IPO and the reason why we're bringing it to you, it's not just because it's another venture-backed California-based software company that's going public. The, the valuation's bonkers. So Sentinel One had revenues of 37.4 million in the first quarter, and it has a valuation of more than 10 billion. Wow. I mean, the, the, the revenue multiple, the implied kind of run rate multiple here is super big. It's one of the most richly valued software companies in the world. And uh, it went public kind of the same week as Didi, which, you know, left me scratching because on one hand, we had this enormously optimistic take on a company, even maybe in excess of its results. And in Didi, it seems to be getting none, like no extra credit and instead seems to be, have to be carrying around its demerits on its shoulders. It shows that the, the IPO market is still open for everybody, but not everyone's going to get the kind of reception that they might have wanted. And I mean, we saw Tiger Global be involved with the latter. I mean, it led its Series A and its Series F um, in Sentinel-1. And so big win for, for Tiger because we all know it really needs one right now. Yeah, Tiger's <laughs> really struggling. Also, Danny, can you tell us why it's funny that Tiger led the A and the F? 
Because <laughs> that's just not say, what normally happens. just say the tiger is making returns AF. Oh, sh- that that's it. Yeah, that's what you got from me. I'm out. I'm dropping the mic. You can't. You can't leave. But I don't want to drop the mic too fast because Duolingo finally filed its S1 this week. It did. I mean, Duolingo is the sole reason I'm on the podcast today. Like I was supposed to take a week off, but I came back because it was Christmas for me. So Duolingo. For those who don't know, Pittsburgh-based ed tech company, they are in the language learning space. And they're one of those few ed tech companies that I think is some is somewhat close to a household name. Yes. They have at least hundreds of millions, maybe 200 million users. And their S1 gave us that look into the financials that we have been hoping to get and got a sneak peek at in my EC1. Alex, you and me walked through them. Pretty massive revenue growth. And, and I was really happy to see, one, that they didn't lie to me, but, but two, that their valuation of $2.4 billion, which was their last private market valuation, seems like something that's definitely be able to clear once it reaches the public market. Yeah. So some data points for everyone out there. In 2019, Duolingo had revenues of $70.8 million, which, to be clear, is very close to IPO scale and it is an impressive result. Then it had a COVID year in which everyone stayed home and, and had to find things to do because you couldn't go outside. And it grew from 70.8 million to $161.7 million in revenue. That is a simply bonkers pace of growth. I think it's like 120, 130%, something like that. And so the company is going public from a position of real strength. So the question then becomes, in my view, Natasha, what happens post-pandemic? And so I was very curious to see their Q1 results from this year, because I think they might give us a little bit of a, at least late Mm -hmm. pandemic feel for what the company is going to look like. And uh, the company grew from 28.1 million in Q1 of last year to 55.4 million this year. So just under 100% in the first quarter. Not quite as good as last year, but still very, very, very strong for a company going public. The only issue was that it did lose a little bit more money, but I think just with its pace of growth, investors are going to be able to kind of look past that because Sentinel One was not shockingly profitable either. And as we just discussed, it kind of crushed it. So I, I got to say, it feels pretty healthy. But Can you niche down for us on the DET? Yes. Well, this kind of goes with the DET, but I was going to say, I think part of the reason that it might be going public right now is that it's probably entering a time period where it's going to have to spend a lot more money getting its product to be a lot better. During the EC1, we kind of, Danny, you remember this, just like that realization of, well, Duolingo can't teach you to speak a language. It doesn't have strong speech capabilities, which is a core part of language. They're doing a lot of trial and error right now with things like repertoire skills or how to embed you in the culture and get you really confident. I think Duolingo is going to be starting is starting to buy a company soon. It will be starting to spend a lot more money on maybe more curriculum providers as part of its company. So I just wanted to give that note in terms of potential rising costs and why the IPO is being timed like it is. But the, the DET is kind of, it fits into this because it's the Duolingo English test. And it's a, it's a cheaper way of providing yourself with the credential, provided that you pass, of English proficiency. But but the, the irony is Duolingo is, is, is a language learning application that has an English test, but it doesn't have the technology to get you from no English via its software to passing the test. Is that right? Yeah. And they, they don't lie about that. They're, they're pretty honest about it. When I talked to the head of the DET, like she was like, that's where we want to get, but we're not there yet. And so the DET is one of their sources of revenue. I think it accounts for 10% of their revenue this past year. And it is about, I think, $49. And that was where a lot of their pandemic growth laid as well. And so I would love to see them get to a point where it can all happen within one brand. Because I don't think anyone's going to argue that Duolingo hasn't done a lot of great things for language learning. I think if any company could do it, probably Duolingo is in a good spot. 
we are going to pivot now to the skies and we're going to fly over to the zip line round Danny and drop off a package of news. Zipline raised $250 million at a $2.75 billion valuation. And, and Zipline oh is most well known for basically having drones in Africa that deliver essential medical supplies. Think of places where there aren't roads, there aren't electricity, power poles, whatever. You can take these drugs, put them on a drone, send them miles in different directions. It's, it's basically last mile logistics from the air. It struggled early on. Uh, I found in 2014, the company admitted that it struggled quite a bit in 2015, but it seems to be finding its stride. And they're not just in Africa anymore. They're now uh, in various places across the U.S., where again, last mile logistics is hard. Raised a ton of money, led by Bailey Gifford, Scottish firm that you know famously backed Tesla for the last 15 years and is making a huge amount of money. They are 100% focused on health. And what I think is interesting here is, is they sort of found their niche. They're doubling down on it. They're going global. And they have plans to deliver 2.4 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine in 2021. Yeah, they found their niche before the pandemic, which is cool. I mean, the idea of emergency medical delivery feels very important in the past 12 months or I guess 18 months now. That was interesting. And then another bit that came up when I was reading the story that Aria wrote for us is that the founder doesn't think of Zipline as a drone company, but is trying to become something bigger, an instant logistics provider, which I actually think is less of a buzzword than some people may think because... It's been partnering with tons of in-person logistic networks across Africa. It, it partnered with UPS, the Toyota Group in Japan, Nigeria's Kaduna, Cross River States. I mean, it's doing kind of like what Coupon did when it first launched and eventually went its success, which is like doing that hard work of getting your roots down and not just, you know, trying to be all about emergency and speed when it comes to delivery. Well, for sure. And, and you know, mentioning Coupon, we haven't even written about it on TechCrunch, but Coupon actually had one of its major distribution facilities burned to the ground. Five million square feet of oh, goods, what? millions of goods were destroyed in a massive fire and blaze. And the stock has actually taken a little bit of a hit since then. But nonetheless, it is a drone company, even though it doesn't really want to be. So one of the two things that, that's interesting here, one is it's basically vertically integrating everything in this supply chain. So we interviewed the founder in the story. And one of the things he really emphasizes is the fact that from the software to the parts in the drones to the actual operations, um, they started with a lot of off-the-shelf parts and then figured out that there's really nothing off the shelf but what they're doing. And so they've had to integrate everything top to bottom. And number two, which I actually think is super fascinating, is it has emergency authorization to work with the AFAA because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it, it is allowed to operate under a provisional waiver. It's actually applying for full commercial operating certification right now. And if it were to get it, it would be the first drone company in the United States to receive that license from the FAA. When the time comes for me to put a small target in my backyard that says like drop here, I can't wait. I'm going to do it. Like the moment I can like order a book from Amazon and I can set off that Rube Goldberg of capitalism and then it ends the drone (laughs) flying over my house to drop off a new copy of a novel. Stoked. (laughs) Well, it might be hard to operate a drone at nighttime, but that doesn't mean you can't do it in the daylight. And that leads to our next company, Daylight, which has uh, raised millions of dollars this week for a neobank focused on the LGBTQ plus community. Daylight raised $5 million in a seed round from Kapoor Capital and Precursor with Charles Hudson, again, funding everything and everyone that we can find on this show. What, what, what <laughs> Daylight is really focused on is offering a sort of uniquely tailored services to a specific community. Alex, there's a couple of different components here. Yeah, there's a lot going on, but I want to talk about just kind of the financial access part of this because we've seen neobanks target different demographics. And one theme seems to be underserved groups getting more access to high quality financial services. We've seen this in neobanks aimed at immigrants, for example. In this case, it turns out that LGBTQ people in the US 
are just less likely to have a savings account. They're less likely to invest in stocks. And so putting together a, a financial services tool for them to help improve their financial health and well-being makes a lot of sense. But uh, as Danny kind of hinted there, the company also wants to help funnel user purchases towards LGBTQ companies and essentially kind of keep the money inside the community, which makes a lot of good sense to me. And, and frankly, I like. And it's, it's wrapping interesting language around expenses that are probably more unique to LGBTQ plus people than other populations, such as adopting a child or getting a surrogate or other surgeries, things that it would make sense to have a bank that speaks and understands your language. Yep. And on that point, for example, they allow you to change the name on your card. So if you're trans and you go through a name change, that's something that you can do pretty easily. I think actually MasterCard is also working on that. So we're seeing other larger groups pursue similar ideas, but it's really fun to see one company really go like, look, we're going to nail all of these things at once. I, I think the big poll, I mean, when we talk about neobanks, we're always talking about CAC, right? The cost of acquiring a customer is very, very expensive, very, very competitive as more and more neobanks come up here. I think part of the magic potentially for Daylight is given how intertwined the LGBTQ community is. There's a hope that I think word of mouth will dramatically lower CAC costs compared to competitors, allowing them to give more benefits, more services, lower fees, and, and have a sort of a win, 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 win. You know, depending on how you count, the LGBTQ community is somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population. Mm -hmm. So if they're actually able to own a bulk of that market, you know, there's a real opportunity to create, I, I think, a profitable, interesting entrant into the neobank space. Yeah, and we'll get to see how well it does throughout the year. It's currently in beta. They have a lot of folks on the wait list. They're, I think they're shooting for about 10,000 customers by their kind of formal October launch, so we'll see. But Natasha, the founders were a real breath of fresh air compared to what we normally see in the fintech space. Their tagline is that they are designed for and by the LGBTQ plus community. And I think the people behind fintech companies do not look like that, rarely at least. And so I think we even saw with like Expensify how much just a single founder having opinions can impact a company's entire trajectory. So I am like a big fan of seeing how simply just having a different set of founders can impact the company. That's where I was at. Let's just say, I think they've articulated a great market. And that leads us to our next company, Articulate. Hopefully we can be articulate about how we discuss this company because they raised $1.5 on a $3.75 billion valuation. That is a Series A 1.5 billion Series A, one of those small ones these days. You could almost call it a pre-seed round, if you will. The company is bootstrapped, so <laughs> unlike most companies, it's been around since 2002, almost 20 years old. It's doing super well. It has 99 or 100, depending on who you ask, customers in the Fortune 100. <laughs> so yeah, either they have every company in the Fortune 100, which is what they told us on TechCrunch, their website says they have 99 out of 100. So I don't know if Microsoft, because it has a loading screen problem and not particularly articulate when it does demos, <laughs> Dropped somehow out. doesn't have this, but that's what's going on here. I'm so glad we finally managed to squeeze Windows 11 into the show because I have so <laughs> many thoughts about it. So my, my, my articulately inarticulate take on articulate is that, ah, it's not a Series A. Yeah. It's a pre-IPO growth round. Why? Why are we calling it a Series A? That's just so stupid. I know it's probably the first institutional money that's going into the company, but like, fuck me. Come on. <laughs> but I do want to talk about what, what Articula does. So what they're focused on is it's a learning and development platform, SaaS-based. It actually started out as a plugin for PowerPoint. So if you ever thought, gee, I want to make a PowerPoint plugin, but I don't think it'll make a lot of money. Well, you can start that way and you could be potentially worth $3.75 billion 20 years later. It has 106,000 customers. So it actually, in addition to having the Fortune 100, it has a huge number of SMBs. And the idea here is that it helps companies build training materials. In my ed tech world that I spend with these early stage companies that are trying to beat Articulate, it's like all they do is talk trash about the way that this company does business when it comes to training their workforces. 
And so I was just surprised to see it get so much money because it doesn't seem like it's too modern in how it executes. Yeah, no, but I mean, what you have to keep in mind is most businesses aren't too modern. I mean, the whole reason why we're talking about the digital acceleration is that most companies weren't digitally accelerating. I mean, like Microsoft's Office Suite is an enormous platform on which to build a company because we don't use it because we live in Google's sweet world. It's so great. But everyone else does, you know? So I I, I guess I'm not, I, I'm bored by the company. I'm shocked by the round. I'm annoyed by its, its nomenclature, but I'm not surprised by the business. But talking about digital acceleration or accelerating the enterprise or shortening that to Acceliprise, I want to have a forum discussion on Acceliprise and its rebrand to forum. Danny, we have to have a new rule, which you can't just try to fit every single word from the headline into the segue. <laughs> okay, so here's the news. Acceliprise is a collection of three B2B SaaS accelerators, two in the US, one in Canada, if memory serves. And they have three news items this week, which is why I kind of made it onto the show. One is their rebranding to Forum Ventures. And uh, they've raised two new vehicles. One is a $17 million fund. It's their fourth for their accelerators. This is where they put capital into early stage companies and kind of follow on and so forth. Pretty neat. It's their biggest pre-seed fund to date. And the company put together its first ever seed fund worth $13.2 million that it will use to carry on investing in its accelerated companies and also invest in other SaaS firms. That's the news, Natasha. Accelerators uh, hot or not in today's market? Accelerators are hot. And it's a perfect segue into Peanut. Peanut is another company that started an accelerator this week. It's called Start Her, and it's going to invest in pre-seed stage startups. The company is a social networking app for women. So I actually think it's really cool to see them kind of non-obviously bring an investing arm into the company. The fund is 300K in size, we'll make three to four investments. And we all know the statistics on how few women check writers there are in this world. So I don't even need to repeat them. This is important. I, I think what I loved about the story is, you know, they're really focused on this friends and family round or, you know, what they call the FFF, the friends, family and fools round. Yep. For a lot of folks, <laughs> um, this is the hardest round to raise. You know, how do you get $100,000, $200,000 just to get going? We actually talked about Articulate, and in that story, Ron Miller mentioned that, you know, the, the founder put his life savings into the company to get it started. And for a lot of folks who don't have savings, you know, whether they're LGBT, women, whatever the case may be, oftentimes they don't have bank accounts, they have less money, so they just have less access to the ability to start a company. And I think the Start Her initiative is a really smart way to bridge that gap and get more people on the right pipeline. All right. Now, we are going to cap off the fund news there and talk about one last thing today. This is the show because we just want to talk about it, frankly. And it's alternative search tools kind of based around the recent news that Neva, which we've talked about on the show before, it's the kind of subscription search engine built by the ex-Googler dude, is kind of out this week. You can use it now. You can sign up. I have signed up for it. I am using it. And it's really exciting to actually use search tech inside of my browser that's not Google. And I am enjoying for the first time since I can recall an ad-free search experience. And I got to say, it's nice. But I want to lay some, some, some kind of wagers here, guys. Do we think Neva has the right formula for success or is Brave and other kind of ad-based alt-Googles uh, more on the right path? Listen, I think that when you're built by ex-Googlers, you obviously are going to get a lot of attention and get a lot of venture slash energy from the general tech community. I do think that really does matter in something like search, where people just need to know you exist in order to use you. Yes. So I, I would bet on Neva. So there are a couple of search products out there, not just Neva and Brave. There's also DuckDuckGo. There's a German B Corp called like Ecosio that plants trees when you search that I found while I was poking around. And so there's a number of search products that are not just Bing that are taking on Google. And 
even in the corporate world, Yex is trying to take on corporate search. And so it feels a little bit to me like we're seeing companies, large and small, start up and mature, chip away at Google as Google is forced to increasingly inundate its core search experience with advertisements, it really to the detriment of its results. Like Google has really had to stretch to make more money from search, it feels like. And it's not a great product to use anymore. And so I am personally hype about this stuff. I think one of the most interesting things is, you know, what is the cause of start a search engine? I, I, I think for decades now, the, the argument has been, you know, Google is impenetrable because the cost of actually indexing the web, searching all these sites, billions and billions, if not trillions of different things, storing all that information, processing it requires massive scale of computing and storage. I think that the cloud has made things so cheap today that if you focus on a couple of different product areas and with really, really cheap compute and storage, you can actually build a pretty damn good search engine for not a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, so you can do this in a couple of ways. Neva is basing its kind of core results on Bing, leveraging all the work that Microsoft has done to build up its own search index, which is not a bad way to go about it. Brave's search engine uses its own index. It bought a separate company and kind of used that tech to get started. DuckDuckGo, I think, runs its own stack as well. So we're seeing companies do this. It's not impossible. And I guess I'm shocked it took VCs this long to begin writing more checks into the space because why wouldn't you want to go after an increasingly aged incumbent that's holding on to, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in yearly revenue? Like what better underbelly to scratch at than that? Like wound them, go after them, crush them. And also it's not like Google has the same ability to hold on to talent like it used to. I feel like it's an energizing reality to remember that something like search is up for grabs right now. Like something as big and scary and powerful as search is being attacked. And I know we talked about that last time we brought up Neva, but it's something that never gets old to me. And it's honestly really exciting. And I'm sure founders either listening or reading these headlines are like, well, now what the hell else is up for grabs? Because literally that, everything that is up for grabs. Yeah. Natasha exactly. is dead on. Everyone's worth $2 trillion and they're all ready for the attack. And with that, we're going to sign off. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Equity. We are back Monday morning. Natasha will be gone for bits of next week, but we will be here and kicking and we'll talk to you then. Stay cool. Have a good fourth. Bye. Bye.